There it is, a win for the ages. This is All American, a new series from Stitcher. You realize Tiger Woods doesn't know who he is. Best in the history of golf, no question in my mind. And this season, we're asking. What if the story of Tiger Woods that the media has been telling, what if it's been completely wrong? Season one of All American premieres August 20th. Subscribe or favorite now. Hey parents, we have a fun assignment for you. Right now, we're collecting your most pressing parenting problems. We have this expert panel coming in. They may not be old enough to drive or vote, but they've got ideas about how to run a family. Surprise, it's a bunch of teenagers. You can stump them with your parenting questions. And because they were so recently children themselves, their answers might be surprisingly wise or totally off. To submit, head to our website, longestshortesttime.com, and hit the Participate tab. We'd come home from school, and the whole PBS afternoon programming was sort of taking care of us. And we were like a public TV house. When I was a kid, Mr. Rogers was a grown-up who cared about a kid's feelings. The thing about Mr. Rogers is that he talks directly to you. So you're having this like one-on-one connection with Mr. Rogers and you're looking at him and he's looking at you and he's talking to you. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. The show aired on PBS from 1968 until 2001, which means it's likely that this trolley sound is eerily familiar, even if you haven't heard it in a while. Neighborhood of make-believe. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Right now, we are at peak Mr. Rogers nostalgia. There is a documentary out called Won't You Be My Neighbor?, There's even a Fred Rogers movie in the works starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. Tom Hanks. Clearly, this guy left a mark on us. This kind-hearted, ordained minister with degrees in childhood development who loves to slowly tie his shoes. Today, we're going to hear some of the most surprising ways he impacted some of you as kids and how that stuck with you through adulthood. Plus, Jun Lei Lee, the director of the Fred Rogers Center, He's going to explain what Fred got about feelings, the little kid ones and the big grown-up ones, too. When Raina in Minneapolis was four years old, she remembers watching Mr. Rogers on her family's TV downstairs. Back then, she was convinced that he could see her, too. There's all the proof in the world that he can because he talks to you, right? Like, he's talking to you in the program. So I'm like, well, you can't tell me he doesn't see me because he's talking to me. Four-year-old brain is like, that makes perfect sense. Raina's kid logic kept going until she got another idea. That Mr. Rogers was somehow like omnipresent and all watching. <laughs> and that he could see me from the television set in the bathroom. So I refused to take a bath because Mr. Rogers might see me. Years later, she's no longer afraid of this. I was in grad school and I found a record sleeve in the trash. And it was Mr. Rogers' sing-along, Songs for Growing Families and Kids. And 
I hung the record sleeve in my bathroom (laughs) where Mr. Rogers would be able to see me all the time. For Cecile in Portland, Oregon, she hadn't thought about Mr. Rogers for years until one day she was washing her hands in a public bathroom and this Billy Joel song came on. I love you just the way you are. It made her think of Mr. Rogers. And I just thought, huh. At the time, she needed music for her side gig. Put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Cecilia Rose! The song would come on, the It's a Beautiful Day in this Neighborhood, and I would come out on stage dressed like Mr. Rogers, just all smiles, and I would change out of my stripper heels into the blue sneakers. I've seen the video. This is where she slowly unbuttons a red cardigan. And then I take off the tie, and it's all very, very sexy, but also silly because, hey, it's Mr. Rogers. You know, here I am. I'm this gal. You know, I'm kind of short. I'm a little I'm a little squishy. And burlesque, you know, in many ways was a way of me feeling like I could say, this is my body, this is what it is. And it's great just the way it is. And you can't make me feel like I need to change it. It's this idea that I like you just for being yourself. It's something that he would say a lot. To most people, it's like, oh, he's this folklore hero. He's, And to me, it's like, yeah, that's all great, but... Man, that guy really pissed me off when I was five years old. Like, come on. When Ben in Baltimore was a kid, he remembers the authority and respect Fred commanded. I mean, I can't think of, like, who the contemporary version of Mr. Rogers is, where, like, and I don't think there really is one, where every kid watches him. You know, he was like the Walter Cronkite for the under-five demographic. You know, like, if he says it, you're going to trust in what he believes. Up until Ben was five, he worshipped Fred like everyone else. He used to watch the entire PBS lineup after school every day with the sister. So one feature of the show that I remember very clearly is that he would take his audience on tours of various factories. And my family and I, being from San Francisco, sometimes we like to do touristy things. So we went to what's called the Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory, but it's really just a room where they sell chocolate products and they have a machine in the back where it kind of looks like they're manufacturing chocolate. I'm not sure if they actually, I highly doubt that even then they made the chocolate there, but there was a machine that looked like it was, you know, stirring and and processing chocolate. So I told my parents, you know, this is definitely something that you would see on Mr. Rogers' show. He goes to all these factories. He showed us how saltine crackers are made and everything else. Why not, you know, put this on his show? And my parents, who, you know, always wanted to encourage uh, our development and our creativity, said you should write him a letter. And for listeners who are born after Google, you should know that we all used to write letters to our heroes. TV shows didn't have websites then. So Ben's mom took out this machine called a typewriter. And I signed my name, which was, you know, a pretty big deal at the time. I think I was maybe four and a half or five years old and sent it away. Little did we know, several weeks later, we got uh, a piece of mail with uh, Mr. Rogers' letterhead uh, coming back to us. Letters from Fred Rogers were a treasured phenomenon in the 90s. 
There's even a whole book of them that Fred put out called Does It Ever Rain in the Neighborhood? Kids wrote to tell Fred that they're afraid of the dark or they're about to lose a tooth or they're dealing with the new baby at home who they want to sock in the face. The book is getting a little dated. But the replies Fred sent were often so tailor-made to the kid's specific need at the age they wrote the letter and so brimming with empathy and love. They're a joy to read. If these correspondences were on Twitter today, we'd be all heart eyes emoji, crying emoji, all caps, what did we do to deserve Fred Rogers? So he writes this letter to me. Instead of saying like, hey, kid, thanks for the great idea. You know, that sounds really interesting. You're my television friend. Have a great day. He starts by saying, you know, I'm really glad you wrote me, but then gets into this I don't want to call it a diatribe, but it seemed to me at the time like a diatribe. (laughs) Before you knew the word for diatribe, you were like, this is a diatribe. (laughs) I didn't know what the word diatribe meant at the time, but that's (laughs) now in retrospect, I, I know that's how I felt. And he said that they would not want to encourage young kids eating unhealthy food like chocolate, so they probably wouldn't go to the Ghirardelli Chocolate Factory. The letter says this. Ben, I'm sorry to tell you, we probably wouldn't show a candy factory on our program. We're glad you could go there. Even though candy can be a fun snack once in a while, we wouldn't want to give so much attention to candy on our television visit. Which is just so crushing. I mean, like, can you imagine a five-year-old receiving a rejection letter? This is, like, I guess it was good because this is my first experience in life with rejection letters, but it was pretty crushing. It's like, of course he wasn't going to go to the chocolate factory. You know, and it's not like I'm asking him to do something that would be enormously controversial where he wouldn't want to be on record even, you know, agreeing to something so crazy. Like, it's a chocolate factory. First of all, I want you to see this. You know what it is? Well, there are usually three or four of these in a box. This is a clip from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in 1983. Ben's dad actually combed the archives of the show and sent me a list of episodes to watch. But this is a package of graham crackers. Have you ever eaten a graham cracker? I really like them. Ben watched Fred happily talk about graham crackers, which are basically cookies, and fortune cookies, which are definitely cookies. What's he adding now? What's food coloring and vanilla? You know, the food coloring gives the cookie their yellow color, and the vanilla makes them taste like like vanilla. That's very pretty to watch. Looks like a painting. Yes, it does. A moving painting. Not only did Fred make these sugary treats sound beautiful, he featured the factories where they were made. And now, you know, they had me and my parents and all of my friends trying to play a gotcha game of, oh, so processed sugar is okay, but not, you know, Ghirardelli chocolate. How has this early lesson in hypocrisy served you through the rest of your life? I mean, I still have sort of like a sense for pointing out hypocrisy. And I'm, you know, pretty politically engaged person. You know, I'm somebody who's on social media a lot, and it's definitely something I pick up on. Uh, and so I sort of, in some ways, trace it back to this. This is like my, uh, the original sin of hypocrisy in my life. If Mr. Rogers didn't really mind touring factories that made sweets, why knock Ben's idea? Could have been a hit show. 
you know, chocolate factories were trending back then. Hashtag Willy Wonka. So I told Ben I would investigate and see if there's more to this rejection that we're missing. I promised I'd get back to him by the end of the show. Awesome. In the meantime, we'll take a make-believe trolley all the way to Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I'm calling up the co-director of the Fred Rogers Center, who can explain why, unlike Ben, most of us did hang on Fred's every word and why those words still resonate. Stay with us. (laughs) Advertisements. Welcome back. Let me just get my cardigan back on. Don't worry, this isn't going to go all burlesque. So our next guest is Jun Lely. He's the co-director of the Fred Rogers Center. Actually, the outgoing co-director. He's off to start his new job as a senior lecturer in early childhood at the Harvard School of Education. When he was growing up in China, he never got the chance to see Fred Rogers. I think in China, we actually got to watch some of the American shows I remember we had excerpts from the Disney cartoons, and we had the Transformers. Transformers, more than meets the As a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh and a new parent, Jinlei started watching this Fred Rogers guy. Instead of overwhelming kids' senses with robot cars, he was softly asking these profound questions. Like, what do you do? When you feel mad, right? What do you do with the mad that you feel? What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Cookie dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag and see how fast you go? Fred was part of this convergence of intellectuals who studied child development together in the early 60s. These were big names in the field, like Dr. Spock, Eric Erickson, and Margaret McFarland. What Fred understood then, and what we understand even better now, is that children know and think about and can understand much, much, much more than what we gave them credit for a long time ago. That they have real feelings, they have real fears, and they have ample imagination And they're capable of thinking through very complex things. This phrase stuck out to me in your answer, uh, that we were just starting to understand that children have real feelings. You know, it's hard to imagine a time before we thought children had real feelings. But is that true, that there was a time where children's feelings just were kind of disregarded by society? And it's only now that we're like, oh, right, they really matter. Well, I think Fred would recount his own childhood and talk about, for example, that he wasn't quite encouraged to show mad feelings or sad feelings. And one of the things uh, I think Fred was adamant about was that on his program, as well as in other encounters, he really didn't want people to say to a child who's upset, don't cry. Because he thought that, no, if a child is going to cry, then let's help to understand why the child is crying, as opposed to our, you know, kind of a gut reaction is to tell them, don't cry. These feelings not only are valid, but they are the important engines that drives children's learning and growing um, in every 
aspect of child development. So when Junlei started talking about the importance of letting kids cry, guess where my brain went? I was thinking about the child separation crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border, where migrant children at some detention centers, they're being told not to cry. This is, according to the New York Times and other outlets, they're being told not to touch even their siblings or else it could hurt their case in court. So without getting into the legal or policy issues, I did want to see what our guest makes of what these children are experiencing. You know, I couldn't help but feel resonance thinking about the experience of childhood with the separation crisis that's going on in this country right now. And I'm curious how you see it as someone who works with children and studies childhood development. I think a number of scientific bodies uh, focused on children, uh, including the National Academy of Science, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and the Center on Developing Child from Harvard University have all put out very strong and scientific arguments as to why the separation of parents and children at a young age is a terrible thing. When we think of what science tells us about children's development, we don't have to get into something very sophisticated. I'll just, there's this very simple idea that is as strong in science as it is in our common sense, which is that for a child to learn and grow well, each child needs at least one caring adult with them. At least one, more, better, but at least one. And in the kind of situations of separation we're talking about, regardless of the policy and legal issues, the first question from common sense as well as from science is that when the children were being separated, who are the at least one in those children's lives during that period of separation? And any child who doesn't have an at least one will struggle not only in learning, not only in growing, but in some very fundamental aspect of child development. For for example, the most important element I think Fred would name is trust. How do they trust? How do they trust not only the people around them, but how do they trust that the world itself is a caring place? Just even thinking about it makes me want to like just call off the interview and, and go like, you know, set a car on fire or something. I just don't even know. But uh, <laughs> Well, I think Fred's question for you could be, what do you do with the mad and sad that you feel? And, and I think he would always advocate that we can all find creative and constructive ways to channel the sad and the mad that we feel. Fine. I won't set fire on a car <laughs> if you insist. <laughs> Hello, I'm Fred Rogers. Some parents wonder how to handle world news with their young children. This is a public service announcement that Fred recorded after the tragedy of 9-11. They played it in Won't You Be My Neighbor, the documentary that just came out. What Fred said in the public service announcement, the one that you saw in the documentary, is that 
we're all called to be repairers of creation. I think that was the term that he used. And the idea that Fred believed that each one of us has the capacity and in a way may have the responsibility to to mend the broken relationships that are in our world. What children probably need to hear most from us adults is that they can talk with us about anything and that we will do all we can to keep them safe in any scary time. I'm always glad to be your neighbor. In a bit, I'm going to call back Ben and maybe we can help him with some of the mad that he feels. Don't go away. Hello? Hey, it's Andrea. All right, hey. Look who's on the phone. It's our friend Ben, who called Mr. Rogers a hypocrite. So, Ben. Yes. Here's what I did. I ran Everything You Told Me by this guy named Jun Lei Lee. He's the outgoing director of the Fred Rogers Center. And here's what he told me. He said, I, I would have to see the letter that was written to Fred to understand Fred's reply. So, Ben, do you have the original letter? I don't think we have the original letter because I don't think we made a copy of it. I think we just sent it in and... And so, yeah, I think it got lost in the ether. Okay, then I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, I figured that wasn't the uh, that wasn't the be all and end all. <laughs> I told Ben what I learned from reading this book of Mister Rogers' letters. Fred explains that in the beginning, he and his wife Joanne used to sit around their dining room table and answer by hand all the mail that came in in the early 1960s. But as the show grew, so did the mail pile, until in the 1990s, they started receiving about 4,000 letters a year. Wow. So by then, he probably had help. But whether or not Fred actually answered Ben's letter himself, we have to assume that the answer at least came from someone who understood the mission of Mr. Rogers. So my goal was to figure out why Fred, or Ghostwriter, would go on this weird diatribe about candy before flat-out rejecting Ben's Ghirardelli factory idea, only to visit other candy-like factories. Now, I have a personal theory about this based on something I learned in the Mr. Rogers documentary. I thought it might have to do with Fred's feelings about sugar. He was called Fat Freddy as a kid. And as an adult, he was obsessed with keeping his weight at 143 pounds through swimming every day and watching what he ate. Yeah, and he was relatively tall. I mean, that seems like a very low body mass index. I mean, that's impressive. Fred loved that number, 143. There's something about it that felt satisfying to his personal numerology. To him, each digit represented a number of letters in a word. One was I, four was love, three was you. To him, 143 on the scale it said, I love you, just the way you are, which is 143 pounds. Oh, wow. 
Interesting. Yeah, good theory, right? But when I told our guest Jun Lei about Ben's letter, he had a totally different read. Over the years, there will be many people who would contact Fred and trying to, one way or the other, trying to get Fred to somehow endorse or promote a commercial product. So if Fred sounds a little touchy, that's why I said I need to see the original uh, letter, because Fred had no patience for people who want to use children's media to sell commercial products to children. He had so little patience for that, and he thought that was awful. Think about it. Fred never sold out. And that is unique in a children's program. So you have diapers with Elmo, right? Right. You, you have Dora the Explorer on backpacks, and, uh, but you don't see Mr. Rogers' face or the face of any of the original puppets like King Friday selling burgers or something. Burgers here? Not a random example. Burger King once aired a commercial with a Mr. Rogers parody character named Mr. Rodney to try to explain to children the difference between fried and flame broiled. Fred called up the Burger King or whoever ran the company, and he asked them nicely to stop airing the commercial. So they did. Because you don't mess with Fred Rogers. Yeah, so here are my thoughts about that. First of all, I think that is completely legit. I respect it. I would have been thrilled as a five-year-old, and my parents, who are, you know, certainly on board with that philosophy, would have been thrilled if he had written a letter and said, I don't think it would be fair to endorse certain products on our show because, you know, and I don't know how you explain this to a five-year-old, but a lot of people want to exploit our television friendship to make money for grown-ups. And even as a five-year-old, I feel like I could have accepted that as an explanation. Really? That there, you would want to know that as a five-year-old, that there are scary people out there trying to sell to you? <laughs> I'm Mr. Well, Rogers could, here with the warning sign. I mean, that's the thing is, I don't know how you would... I, I'm satisfied hearing that explanation now. But then why do you come up with such a disingenuous explanation? That's my question about it. But Ben, let me remind you something that you told us about this Ghirardelli chocolate factory. I highly doubt that even then they made the chocolate there, but there was a machine that looked like it was, you know, stirring and, and processing chocolate. It's not even a chocolate factory. <laughs> I know, but... It's just a right. store where they sell chocolate. And you're like, Fred, you should go to the store and just uh, be a big ad for big chocolate. All right. Well, here's my other question. So you and I have established over the course of our communications that he did go to other factories. So, you know, we found that episode with the graham cracker factory or the donut shop. So were any of those, were those all like independent or make-believe companies? Well, his tour of the graham cracker factory, that was a Nabisco graham cracker factory, but you uh-huh. don't... But you don't see Nabisco in the in the entire episode once, and he actually never puts a graham cracker in his mouth. Isn't it interesting to find out how people make things? If you eat graham crackers, now you can think of all the people who helped to make them for you. Let's just have some. If anything, I think he's anti-consumerist thinking, right? 
Again, Jin Lee Lee. He doesn't want children to just become consumers and go, well, we get all these from the store. He wanted people to understand that there are people involved in everything that you have, from your backpack to the crayon to the milk and cookies and so on. I full-on respect for that, but not full-on respect for that letter. Ben, did a chocolate company hire you when you were a child to bring publicity to their fake chocolate factory? (laughs) (laughs) No, I have never uh, been paid by a chocolate company. I do eat a lot of chocolate. I will disappoint a million Facebook friends I have and the adoring populace and all the documentary goers, but I'm going to be that ant at the, the giant picnic. It's more like a, a company picnic because there are probably thousands and thousands of people with amazing stories. And I'm the tiny little ant saying like, hold on, I'm just going to contaminate your grapes a little bit. You know, introduce you just to this, this speck of an idea that he might have had a slightly dishonest, duplicitous side to him, even if, on the whole, he was 99.99% benevolent. I've chosen this hill to die on, and I'm going to die on it. Nevertheless, Fred's influence? Net positive for Ben. After that early lesson in hypocrisy at the tender age of five, he went on to get a law degree. That letter has been framed in my room since it was sent, which is actually kind of funny to think about now. Like, we're so resentful, but we decided to frame the letter. You can read the letter yourself on our website, longestshortesttime.com. Why do you think Fred's legacy is resonating today? Write us a letter. Just kidding. You can just comment on episode number 166. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antoni Akatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, when Mira was adopted from Korea, she was nine years old. Her new mom lived in Hawaii, and it turned out she had a strange pet. At the time, I had a pet mongoose. (laughs) It's like a huge rat. The mongoose did not like her. Because mongoose was there before I was there. Hi, Jinx and Sue. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And remember... Send in your parenting questions for our upcoming teen panel. We'd love to leave them stumped. Go to longestshortesttime.com. Hit the participate tab and submit your questions. Oh, that's wrong. That's chocolate. Stitcher. I say it. Okay. Bye.